0: Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 10, Normandy and the Danelaw. In recent episodes, we narrowed in our scope from a big-picture overview of the Merovingians and Francia and the Anglo-Saxons in England in order to examine the more technical and narrow issues of feudalism and and canon law. Now we're going to zoom back out again and look at where we're at in the big picture. In doing so, we will encounter the Vikings, or the Scandinavian men of the north, that raided both Francia and the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms with an increased vigor beginning in the 9th century and continuing for the next 200 years. This Scandinavian influence, mainly from the areas of modern-day Denmark and Norway, made an enormous impact in both Francia and Anglo-Saxon England. These influences provide us with yet one more layer of detail to consider as we set the stage to discuss the Magna Carta. Now, you may recall when we last left the Merovingians in Francia, they began to lose influence and power as they began to run out of territory to conquer, and the spoils of war began to be divided up among those nobles supporting the Merovingians with military service. As you may also recall, the Merovingians utilized mayors of the palace to serve as administrators of their royal domains. Those positions in themselves became hereditary, which resulted in a significant accumulation of power for one particular family of Frankish nobles. The Carolingians, so-called because those in their line were often called Charles, became one of those lines of nobility that ultimately overshadowed and with gradual but targeted effort managed to seize the reins of power and authority from the Merovingian line. At first, the Merovingians managed to maintain nominal authority. By 751 AD, the Carolingians effectively deposed the Merovingians' and seized full power and authority over those Merovingian domains. Under their leadership, beginning with Charles, Martel, Carolingians continued the effort to expand Frankish power that the Merovingians simply could not maintain. They began to move to the east and south, establishing their rule over the lands in between. They assumed and then consolidated power from the various local lords who had taken advantage of Merovingian weaknesses and managed to establish their own many kingdoms. Ultimately, Charles the Great, or Charlemagne, the grandson of Charles Martel, came to the Frankish throne by 771 A.D. after the death of his co-ruler brother Carloman had died. Charlemagne became famous in world history for his military success and expansion of the Frankish kingdom into southeastern Europe and Italy. He also became recognized for his patronage of education, learning, and the advancement of Christianity. This so-called Carolingian Renaissance sought to rescue Roman heritage and learning with an emphasis on learning Latin, literacy, and the application of Roman legal principles when appropriate. But what is often overlooked is that this Renaissance was really only made possible through and with the cooperation of the Christian monasteries and their learned monks who needed to be literate in order to teach and translate the books of the Bible. It was the church, both the religious and secular, that provided the Carolingians with so many of their administrators, counselors, scholars, legal experts, and teachers. Significantly, given Charlemagne's thirst for Christian knowledge and spreading the faith even into the Italian peninsula, it should come as no surprise that he sought out to establish a permanent relationship with the papacy, who at this point controlled a significant amount of territory in its own right on the Italian peninsula. In fact, it was none other than Pope Leo III in the year 800 that crowned Charlemagne as Emperor of the Romans. Now, as you can imagine, this caused some consternation, because while the last Western Roman emperor was deposed back in 476, if you recall, we covered that in episode 2, we also noted at that time that the Eastern Roman Empire, or Byzantium, continued on and continued to hold its claim as the rightful heirs of the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, this act of coronation by the Pope was to give rise uh, to a dominant force for the next millennium. Known as the Holy Roman Empire, and Charlemagne was its first emperor. Now, I would really like to speak more about the Holy Roman Empire, its relationship to Rome, its relationship to the old Roman Empire in the West, and Charlemagne's role in establishing it. But, alas, we would be getting way too far off track. For our purposes, I just must remain focused today on Francia and the effects of Charlemagne's influence in the Western half of his empire. And along those lines, another important reality for our consideration was Charlemagne's efforts to consolidate and rein in all of those wayward nobles who I had mentioned, began to gather and assume independent power on their own since the days of the Merovingians. Charlemagne was able to leverage his newly gained international prestige, authority, and wealth from conquered lands to assert tighter administrative control over his territory in Francia. The use of comites or counts, remember that was a holdover from the Western Roman Empire days, continued in Francia under Charlemagne, as it did the Merovingians, and Charlemagne appointed counts as local administrators over various regions or counties within Francia. However, unlike the Merovingians, Charlemagne also employed the use of Missi Dominici, who answered directly to Charlemagne and would roam his lands, supervising the works of his counts. One of their particular functions was to announce royal edicts, known as capitularies. These capitularies would often address various religious, moral, and secular concerns. Charlemagne, in many ways, was a man before his time because he effectively consolidated and expanded his power but also managed to pull off quelling eternal dissent through efficient administrative rule. Unfortunately for the Carolingians, Charlemagne's heirs did not possess the same qualities and managed to lose control not long after Charlemagne's death in 814. His son, Louis the Pious, inherited the Frankish throne and imperial crown after Charlemagne's death. But in turn, he promised to split the empire upon his death among his heirs. In 843, the Treaty of Verdun divided Carolingian Empire into three parts, West Francia, Lotharingia, and East Francia. It was based on West Francia that that modern-day France, for the most part, gained its current territorial shape. Now, the divisions and dynastic squabbles that occurred among Charlemagne's heirs opened the door for others to take advantage of military weakness, and one of those who took full advantage of the Carolingian decline were the Vikings, or the Scandinavians, hailing from Denmark and Norway. While beginning under the reign of Charlemagne, by the time the Vikings managed to make inroads, literally into the interior of Francia, the territory under Charlemagne Carolingian control included a patchwork of various principalities that once operated as administrative districts for Charlemagne, but in reality became, for all practical purposes, independent fiefdoms. The primary and most powerful territories included Burgundy, Aquitaine, Brittany, and then Normandy. While many of the noble titles already in use, borrowed from Roman days, continued to be used as Charlemagne's Administrative districts gradually transformed into these uh, semi autonomous principalities, duchies, and counties. The functional role of those holding such titles changed more from local administrators of the king to powerful lords, referring nominal homage to the king as vassals, but operating as if they were kings in their own right. In fact, many of these had operated as independent kingdoms until coming under the control of Charlemagne. Let's take a look at these fiefdoms just briefly, because they will come up again as important players on the international scene after 1066. In Aquitaine, for example, an important noble named William assumed the title of Duke of Aquitaine by the end of the 9th century. Burgundy, likewise, also became an important duchy. Brittany also operated essentially as a semi-autonomous territory or kingdom, until Viking raids took a significant toll. Like the other dukedoms, Brittany was finally brought back into the French royal kingdoms as a duchy. And then, of course, there was Normandy, which requires special attention because, as a semi autonomous duchy, it played a significant role in the history of England and Magna Carta, as we will see. Keep in mind that while all of these duchies operated essentially independent of the French crown, their dukes paid homage as vassals to the Carolingian and later Capetian line of French monarchs. Within or bordering these duchies, smaller subunits of administration became themselves hereditary feudal powers that played important roles in the dynastic disputes of the age. These districts, under the authority of a count or counties, played a significant role in the dynastic and feudal disputes that plagued Carolingian West Francia. Some of these important counties were Anjou, Maine, Rouen, Blois, and Flanders. As for the French monarchs themselves, after this territorial disintegration following the death of Charlemagne, royal authority maintained limited domains of direct control around the cities of Paris and Orleans. While while retained feudal lordships over their powerful vassals, for all intents and purposes, the Carolingians and later the Capuchins were just another line of hereditary magnates competing among a sea of nobles. Don't worry though, Spoiler: this is a spoiler alert. Eventually, the French monarchy would regain its authority, but that would not come for another couple centuries down the line. Now, bringing our attention back to one of the most important duchies, the most well-known and most successful of the Scandinavian invaders, became known to history as the Normans, the founders of Normandy in northern West Francia. The legal origins of Normandy date back to 911 AD, when a warlord named Rollo was created Count of Rouen by Charles the Simple, king of West Francia at the time. By that point, there had already been significant invasion and colonization by the Normans. But Charles the Simple was essentially forced into a political alliance that he probably didn't want to make and made significant concessions to keep peace. Among these included granting Rollo essential autonomy. Rollo's heir, Richard II, was the first to promote himself to Duke and assumed this title by 1006. What's remarkable about the Normans is that despite their Viking background and history, they intermarried and then assimilated quite easily and quickly into Frankish society. This is significant because in addition to the Frankish language, they adopted many of the Frankish administrative practices and cultural customs that served Charlemagne so well. And while pockets of the Norse language remained as late as the 12th century, the Normans, for all intents and purposes, became Franks. And it's hard to underestimate the power and influence the Normans managed to assume so quickly. The Dukes of Normandy basically ruled their duchy as a king would rule a kingdom. In fact, Normandy was several times the size of the Frankish royal domain. The Duke had a monopoly on coinage and used his viscounts or viscounts, to collect revenues, lead military units, and guard castles. And castles, by the way, were adopted by the Normans as an effective military tool to exert power and defend land, and were brought with the Normans to England after 1066 conquest. Now, as we mentioned in the episode on canon law, secular rulers before the reforms undertaken by Gregory VII would often appoint bishops, and this was very true for the Norman dukes as well who wielded significant authority and influence when it came to matters involving the church. This was consistent with Carolingian practice utilized by Charlemagne. The Normans are also important to our story because they acted as a bridge between the Frankish world that established itself in Old Roman Gaul and England that came under the control of the Anglo-Saxons. While many legal concepts and ideas were shared between the Franks and Anglo-Saxons, it was the Normans who essentially fused these different cultural and legal strands into the England of the 13th century. Among the legal processes that the Normans adopted from the Franks was the inquest, which consisted of examinations of the population under oath by a centrally appointed official. These examinations were limited, or not limited, I should say, to any one purpose, but could be used to gather economic data, to present suspected criminals, or make determinations as to whether criminal charges were in fact true or not. It was not unusual for Norman authorities to send officials to conduct and hold local courts, even if a manorial court had existed. Among the many Frankish practices perfected under Charlemagne and then lost among the dynamic dynastic disputes was that the Normans adopted the use of centralized administrators to exert authority even on the local level and often at the expense of the local lord. This tendency to pervert the first centralized royal or noble authority to govern would be brought to full force in England after the 1066 conquest. This notion of a king or duke offering justice to the people of the realm was referred to as high justice, while the local manorial courts were referred to as low justice. This distinction originated in Normandy and utilized in England after the conquest. Eventually, if there was a certain matter that the king or duke had determined would be heard in his courts, a litigate could petition the royal or ducal court to hear his case and if accepted, the court would issue a writ to the defendant from the duke demanding his presence at court. This writ system would become the primary means of legal justice in England in the centuries to come, which we will come back to in later episodes. While the Normans perfected many of these procedural mechanisms, they continued to apply and enforce the local substantive ancient customs, including the customs of the local assemblies, which acted as juries to resolve disputes. And this is important because while the Normans introduced strong enforcement mechanisms and new options for achieving justice, they continued to apply the ancient customs of the land, whether in Norman France or Anglo-Norman England. This effort to preserve the ancient Germanic laws continued to provide the subjects of the various realms with stability and consistency when it came to dealing with their neighbors and lords, while the means for enforcing these customs were gradually updated. One aspect of Frankish rule that the Normans adopted with vigor was feudalism, and a very distinct and hard feudalism which maintained much stricter class distinctions between the nobility and peasants. This distinction was brought with William to England and played a significant role in subsequent English history, as we're going to see as well. Now, I have made several references to England, and it's probably a good idea to turn our attention back across the English Channel and examine how the Viking invasions there, in many ways, changed the legal and political landscape. You may recall from Episode 5 that the Anglo-Saxon kings also maintained their own type of administrative authority over the lands they controlled, and eventually these kingdoms consolidated into what we know as England today under the West Saxon line of kings. By the time of King Egbert, but more so under King Alfred and then Edgar, who reigned in the middle of the ninth century, tenth century, excuse me, the House of Wessex managed to consolidate power at least among the other Anglo-Saxon tribes. But, like the Carolingians in Francia, they too faced invasions from the Northmen of Denmark and Norway. And also, like the Vikings on the continent, those Northmen managed to carve out spheres of authority at the expense of the Anglo-Saxons. In many ways, like Charlemagne in Francia, King Alfred, who died in 899, had his own renaissance of sorts in England, and managed to subdue rival kings, institute religious and education reforms, and fend off outside invaders. He truly acted like a Christian king of all England, even if all of England was not quite yet under his control, and he did certainly earn the respect of his allies. This was desperately needed as the Anglo-Saxons fended off various Viking invasions into the interior of Britain. Now, one advancement Alfred made, mainly done for military purposes originally, but which had a lasting impact on the future of English settlement, were the creation of the Burrs. These essentially fortified towns with uh, straight-line street grids designed to achieve transportation efficiency. While built to meet military needs, these burhs eventually became thriving towns and satisfied the needs of a growing economy that extended beyond agriculture and farming. While Alfred and his allies managed to push the Vikings back out of the interior, there is no question the Vikings caused significant damage through conquest and plunder, especially of the monasteries. Eventually Alfred was able to reach an agreement with Danish leader Guthrum, and interestingly, Guthrum accepted baptism along with several of his military leaders in the process. But Alfred was forced to concede territory to Guthrum to secure peace. And this area behind his Guthrum's military line became known as the Danelaw. These areas included Northumbria, the five burrs of Lincoln, and East Anglia. Unlike the Normans who were quick to assimilate, to Frankish laws and customs, the Danes and the Danelaw did not assimilate as smoothly with the English. In fact, many Scandinavian place names were employed along with their particular version of manorial organization, land measurement, and legal customs. Many of these were quite different than the Anglo-Saxon versions at the time. For example, in the Danelaw, local administrative units were referred to as Wapentakes, which basically served the same function as a hundred under Anglo-Saxon law. While the Anglo-Saxon names for towns or villages would end in Tun or Hun, Scandinavian place names would end in B, "by," or "thorp." Again, this is mainly of interest to see how Viking culture impacted Britain after settlement. The legal customs were different as well. For example, under the Dane law, the compensation owed to the Lord for the murder of one of his men depended on the killed, killed man's social rank, whereas under Anglo-Saxon law, the compensation owed was based on the rank of the Lord. And speaking of social ranks, in the Dane law, a unique rank existed called a hold which was basically a rank between the noble eldermen and the chaoral peasant class. The title eldermen, also called the things, the high-ranking nobles under the Anglo-Saxons, were replaced with the Scandinavian version Aoral or earl. Essentially, the duties of this noble title were the same within the Danelaw as under the Anglo-Saxons, Uh, But but, but the title itself stuck and was adopted by later generations of English nobility. This in part is due to the fact that the battles between the Vikings and English would resume and ultimately lead to the crowning of King Canute, of Viking origin in 1016. The Anglo-Saxon line, House of Wessex, would eventually regain the crown, uh, only to eventually lose it to King William I of England. Also known as William the Conqueror of Normandy in 1066, as history well knows. But it is true that Danes assumed ranks within the English noble class, yet they did not necessarily displace the Anglo Saxon nobility either. Despite their military victories, there really was no wholesale replacement of the Anglo Saxons with this new Danish culture. The Anglo Saxons managed to keep many of their own cultural and legal customs. By 1017, Canute divided England into four earldoms, Northumbria, East Anglia, Mercia, and Wessex. The Northumbrian and East Anglian earls were under the authority of Danes, while Mercia and Wessex remained under the authority of Anglo-Saxon earls. Godwin, Earl of Wessex, would come to play an important role in 1066 upon William's Norman invasion. Not only did Canute play an important role in consolidating royal power from the top, he instituted a more efficient system of taxation that would remain with England for many years to come, even after the conquest. The Danegeld became a means of assessing land based on a fixed rate per hide. And if you need a review of what hides were, be sure to check out episode 5. Interestingly, despite his Danish background, Canute ruled very much as English monarchs would in the future. He issued laws, bounded monasteries, and ruled like a Christian king. So, while the Danelaw preserved many Scandinavian customs and culture, culture uh, traits, it cannot be said that there was no interaction or assimilation among the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes at all. Like the Normans, Britain commands from King from kings also became more common, and were referred to as writs. A writ, as I had mentioned earlier, was simply a command from the king to a lesser official. In England, that lesser official was typically the shire reeve or the sheriff. It could also document and transfer uh, document a transfer of land or title. These writs would replace the old charter system, and become commonplace in post-conquest England, as we're going to see. So at the end of the day, for the three centuries preceding the 1066 Norman conquest of England, many threads of influence, especially from the Scandinavian Vikings of the north, played a significant role in the development of both Francia and Anglo-Saxon England. While certainly brutal at times, these Vikings did assimilate to the pre-existing customs and cultures in both England and Francia, although more so Normandy than on the island. Nevertheless, we begin to see significant changes concerning royal control and administration within a growing feudal system. This would lead to eventual and perhaps inevitable conflict. This would all begin to come together when these two strands of history in Francia and Britain would meet in 1066 after William the Conqueror invaded England and beat out his Anglo-Saxon and Danish opponents to secure the crown of England for the Normans.